Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2021. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, John Goodman details market-based solutions well beyond healthcare. Cato's Matthew Feeney wonders why conservatives aren't more bullish on decentralized tech. And Cato's Trevor Burris explains the importance of a recent Supreme Court decision further enshrining donor privacy from the government. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In both Cuba and Haiti, long, simmering dysfunction is now uh, more obvious than ever. Uh, it's probably worth remembering that the United States has a really long history uh, messing with both of these countries. Uh, I'm joined by Ian Vasquez. He directs the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and Doug Bandow, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. So um, whoever wants to take it here, our history with both Cuba and Haiti goes back a long way. Uh, people forget that the United States actually occupied Haiti for uh, some time. Can can you walk us through U.S. involvement in those countries? Well, they're both very different, but the U.S. is involved in both of them. Haiti is the one country that was created essentially by slaves who revolted against their masters. It was a French colony. It was a particularly brutal form of a slavery. Uh, people died very early, worked extraordinarily hard, a very vicious system. So they revolted. The revolt started in the late 1700s. They achieved independence in the early 1800s. The French showed up and wanted to retake the island and demanded uh, basically payment for the losses to the masters, which the, they agreed, the new government agreed to to basically get the French to go away. A very tumultuous history. Throughout the 1800s, the U.S. refused to recognize Haiti until I think it was 1862. It was in the U.S. Civil War because it was a former, I mean, these are former slaves and they're African-Americans or Africans, you know, by ethnically. So for the, the new country of the United States, uh, it could not really handle that uh, being a slave republic. Uh, they had coups, they had, uh, you, know, you know, dictators, they had elections. I mean, a very, very difficult time. The U.S. occupied them in 1915 for about 20 years. It was 19 years, but you know, about 20 years. Uh, you know, came out of that, and a lot of this was do domestic politics, economic interests, uh, a lot going on. You know, so they've had a very rough time. They uh, had under the Devalier dictatorships back in from the 50s, really through the 70s. The U.S. for the most part was supportive, simply because it was anti-communist. They got through that, and then the time has been tumultuous as well. They've had elections. It's a country of extraordinary poverty. They've had military coups. The Clinton administration helped overturn a coup, put back in a populist who'd been elected by the name of Aristide. He was overthrown. They had a UN, essentially, occupation that ended about four years ago. They had this hideous uh, earthquake about a decade ago that had mass damage and casualties, horrendous consequences. And it's, it's a country, it's probably the poorest country, you know, in the region. I mean, a, a really tragic history. And they're at a point now they had an elected president and, but he ruled as an authoritarian and the, the, you know, the, they ran out of the legislature and they hadn't held elections and the head of the Supreme Court died. And then the president got assassinated. Uh, so the question is what to do. That's kind of where we're sitting. It's really awful. 
Uh, Cuba came basically to the U.S. through uh, the, the Spanish, where the U.S. went to war theoretically to liberate Cuba. The U.S. also seized the Philippines as part of that. It's a whole new, that's a you know, separate aspect of this. So the war of, uh, you know, Spanish-American War, I think 1898, the U.S. won that very quickly. The question is what to do with Cuba. The U.S. is involved in occupation, freeing them, but wanting kind of the right to intervene if it wanted to. Uh, the real history, kind of the modern history for the U.S. standpoint, goes back to 1859 or 1959-1960, uh, the Batista dictatorship overthrown by Fidel Castro. Castro being a communist who uh, you know, has a relationship with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. The U.S. put the embargo in you know, back 60 years ago. Uh, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, the first the U.S. to you know supported an invasion, the Bay of Pigs invasion, that was a disaster. Then the uh, you know the Soviets put in troops as well as nuclear weapons. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis. Luckily, got through that without blowing up the world. Uh, the agreement with that is we wouldn't invade them again. The the Soviets withdrew the missiles. The uh, and then you had, I mean, Fidel Castro because he was an object of U.S. acrimony and attention, essentially became this third world figure, and a figure of independence standing up to the United States. Uh, and but of course, Cuba was a disaster. It was a dictatorship, and it didn't do well economically. It survived on Soviet subsidies. They ended with the end of the Soviet Union. So in the early 1990s, they talked about a, you know, a special period. They had an extraordinarily difficult time losing the subsidies. The U.S. has intensified the sanctions over the years, trying you know, the tactic we use everywhere to force out the government by penalizing the people. And we're now in a world where the, the Cubans have essentially moved beyond the Castros and that Fidel is dead. Raul has retired. He's still influential. He's still behind the scenes, but they've turned over, in theory at least, the government to a new generation, a post-revolution generation. But of course, the economy doesn't work. No surprise. Socialists cannot make economies work. And it remains a nasty dictatorship. And we're seeing younger people there, artists, a lot of other people revolt against that. They want economic uh, opportunity. They want an opportunity to speak their minds. And the U.S., unfortunately, under Trump, kind of reimposed sanctions and deepened them. So the U.S. is punishing the people in the name of trying to help protect them from the government. Uh, Another tragic situation. Both of these are incredible problems, and they've kind of emerged at the same time with the demonstrations in uh, Cuba, which were widespread, 50 or more communities across the island, as well as, you know, the assassination then of the Haitian president. Both of them are kind of in crisis at the same time. Ian? With respect to specific respect to uh, Cuba, we saw some, I guess, some improved relations not that long ago, maybe uh, six years ago uh, with the Obama administration. What what was the goal uh, with the Obama administration in changing relations with Cuba? Well, the goal was to help help improve conditions uh, on the island and especially conditions, uh, for, for freedom. It was a recognition that, uh, more than 50 years of an embargo hadn't worked. The point of an embargo was to dislodge the the regime or to get them to reform and, and so on. And, um, that was at a time where you could argue during the cold war that, that, that it represented a security threat. But of course that faded away after the collapse of the Soviet union. And so this was an effort to see what 
uh, on the margin the United States can do to to promote better uh, conditions and possibly encourage uh, some reforms of some freedom uh, on the island. I've never thought that the embargo was uh, was uh, successful, but I also um, have not thought that the embargo is what explains Cuba's misery, which, of course, um, is the, the explanation that the co- communists and the regime and its supporters always trot out uh, to explain away their their own failures. But but um, I, one of the, the the successes of the uh, engagement has been an increase in the use of the Internet uh, in in Cuba. And that really started a few years ago, uh, around 2018, that finally the regime uh, started to allow on a widespread scale the use of the Internet by ordinary Cubans and cell phones have become ubiquitous and so on. And that has played a key role in what we saw on July 11th. And I think it's important to stress just how truly unprecedented these protests were in communist Cuba. I mean, this was the first time that protests occurred on a massive scale uh, nationwide in in cities and countries across the the cities and uh, towns across the country and simultaneous. Uh, and the protesters were very clear about what they wanted. They were chanting down with the dictatorship and freedom. Libertad, libertad, libertad. Uh, so this is very much a fight for freedom uh, in Cuba. And it reflects uh, what I think has been a social change that has been going on, certainly in the past year in Cuban society, uh, that caught the dictatorship by surprise. And that is that Cubans have lost their fear of openly and publicly defying the dictatorship. And that's new. And that makes Cuba today a different country than it was before uh, July 11th, because ordinary Cubans were able in a, on a, in a spontaneous way to break through the extensive system of social control of spies and different layers of of uh, informants and police security that has acted until now to prevent this kind of thing uh, from happening. It is a very repressive state, but up till now, uh, the Cuban regime and its supporters have always said, "Look, you never have uprisings in in Cuba. You you don't see tanks on the street. People are are happy with with communism." Well, that was only because they had such a system of uh, of repression in every neighborhood and and in every organization, and the internet uh, has played a role that has allowed uh, Cubans to sort of break the collective action problem. Everybody before was just too afraid to come out and, and, and say anything. They would get whacked, thrown in jail, they could get killed and, and so on. Um, but that's, that, that was, that has changed. And that's a, a very significant, uh, development in Cuba. The, the protests showed not only all Cubans, but the rest of the world, just how unpopular and how, how much, uh, legitimacy, the regime lacks. How much of the problems in these countries now can we uh, attribute to uh, U.S. involvement? I think that we would have to deal with with the, each country separately. Certainly, the United States has has played a role uh, in each country, uh, and typically not a positive role. I think in Haiti, it, it has uh, intervened uh, in a more uh, negative way. Uh, it really hasn't, uh, played much of a role beyond an embargo in, in Cuba. I mean, it, the United States occupied Haiti at the beginning of 1915 for almost 20 years. And that set up, um, 
an authoritarian nationalist movement uh, that once the, the U.S. troops left led to the rise of the Duvalier dictatorship, which itself was was there for about 29 uh, years or so. Uh, and and so the U.S. has played this role of in, in Haiti that has been much more active and interventionist sanctions, embargoes, and always, of course, in the name of establishing democracy and so on. Hasn't worked out uh, very well in Cuba. Um, I think the embargo has played a negative effect, mostly because uh, it it is an embargo on exports, imports, investment, and on travel. And I think that the best way that the United States could promote changes is through uh, loosening travel, letting Americans go there, interact with ordinary Cubans, and help uh, to uh, promote the informal economy. That is, Cubans who are making money on the side, making them become more independent of the of the Cuban states. I think that would be helpful. But let's not uh, let's not fool ourselves. That in itself is not going to usher in uh, freedom. This is a police uh, state, and so. Um, we shouldn't fall into the trap, certainly not in the case of, uh, of Cuba, to, to, to sort of point our fingers to the United States as the principal problem. It could, uh, it could do things to help, and we can talk about that, uh, but the main cause of Cubans' misery is, without any question, communism itself. So, uh, you know, the proximity of these countries, both of these countries in the United States, is uh, it's, you know, Cuba is 90 miles away. Uh, Haiti is not that much further away. Uh, you know, it, it, it should, it should be natural for the United States to be, uh, more engaged with, uh, both of these countries from, uh, trade and travel, uh, and, you know, have direct engagement with ordinary people of both countries. There's no prohibition about ordinary engagement in Haiti, though, these days, there is extraordinary nervousness, if nothing else, about safety. I mean, I was there a few years ago, an extraordinarily poor country, but you weren't worried about, you know, the particular violence against a visitor. I mean, there's a, a much greater role of organized crime today. It's, it's actually been used politically by authorities. Uh, there's resentment towards the U.S., the feeling that the U.S. supported uh, the, the assassinated president and that there's been outside intervention trying to you know, it's a very complicated political situation internally where we at one point had three or four claimants to be acting president and the U.S. and outsiders appeared to support one over another. Uh, you know, the, the Cuban situation, I think Ian pointed out, is the I mean, it's the embargo and the other, I mean, there's so many other penalties that have been piled up since then. There was Helms-Burton back in 1986, then a whole range of other penalties that have, have come on. Is the Cuban government there recognizes that American involvement in terms of freedom, that is allowing investment, allowing travelers is threatening. I was there, I think, three or four years ago. And what was extraordinary is talking to business people and their frustration was they had created, at that point at least, the private economy had about 40% of the jobs, that it was a real threat to the regime in the sense that people looked outside the government for good jobs. Uh, they looked outside the government for opportunity. And uh, when Obama came and spoke, it, the, millions of people turned out. It was an extraordinary turnout it, to see him. When I visited, there were still decals on cars with his picture. 
that people had looked to him as representing, in a sense, America and opportunity. The foreign minister at the time, you know, was very gave a very angry speech. You know, kind of, and they they perceived this as a challenge to them that they had not expected. You know, I mean, it's so typical. These regimes assume they are popular and well loved until the moment they hold an election or they create something, an opportunity like this where people can show that, in fact, they're looking elsewhere for that. And I think, you know, Ian is absolutely right that opening up that travel and opportunities is not enough to overthrow the regime. Hundreds of people have been, disappeared after the demonstrations, and the presumption is that they've just been arrested. You know, but they have no legal process. There's no habeas corpus. You know, people show up at police stations asking about, you know, their loved ones who have simply disappeared. Nevertheless, you know, that better, that open economic involvement, I think, is a very much a, you know, it helps undermine the regime and it's a positive thing. Haiti is, is more difficult of how do you reconstruct a political system where we've shown the U.S. can't do it and outsiders can't do it. I mean, under Clinton, they made a real effort. They threatened to invade. They, uh, you know, out, so the, the military dictatorship left. Aristide, uh, who was a very popular figure, but also a violent one. I mean, at one point was promoting the use of necklacing, as they called it. Uh, tire, you know, tires filled with the gasoline and lit placed around people's necks, uh, you know, to get rid of people you didn't like. Uh, then he was ousted and then appeared, the U.S. appeared to play a role in sending him off to Africa, putting him on a plane and just getting him out of the country. You know, so America's involvement has created extraordinary resentment, as Ian pointed out, has played a role in creating dictatorship along the way. Both of these are difficult in the U.S. role. Tragically, as you indicated, we are so close we could be helpful. The U.S. has been unhelpful in both cases. I mean, the, the, Haiti, Haiti really is a, a failed state. I was there 15 or 20 years ago during uh, Aristide's uh, presidency, one of them. And um, even then, nothing worked. And nothing worked in Haiti. The electricity grid was barely working the, the, at night. The the entire capital city, Port-au-Prince, would go dark. Um, water uh, didn't work. If you wanted electricity at night, you had to have your own generators. And of course, that's only the, the, the rich people could afford that. The rest were just using fires or kerosene lamps. People were carrying water in jugs up to their houses and, and places that they live security you know pu just basic public services uh the police uh were just one more gang they weren't actually uh providing public security they were just one more gang uh that at the time was working for aristide and uh, i met with several businessmen who's uh who had to have their own security details because uh, some of them had been kidnapped for ransom by the police so that the money would go up to, to aristide it was it's really that situation cuba is very different Cuba is a country that, um, uh, you know, before the revolution was leading Latin America on all sorts of indicators of human well-being and 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 income. And um, that's sort of the basis where we're and Cubans are very well, um, well educated. If you go to Cuba today as well, uh, the United States and uh, and U.S. culture is extremely popular and it always has been uh, so. There, that's that's another big difference. Were Cuba to become free, I think its path toward um, institutions of freedom and so on would likely be easier uh, than the one that Haiti has to take. What is the is there a clear relationship between uh, that we that we can say that could be helpful between the Dominican Republic and Haiti and Cuba and uh, Puerto Rico and the Bahamas? Is there? I mean, is they're all right there. 
So what are the relationships among among those countries? Well, the Dominican Republic and Haiti have a very difficult relationship. Uh, you know, even after after Haiti you know, freed itself, uh, you know, there there are different points of war between the Dominican Republic, which at one point was a Spanish colony, and Haiti. And more recently, Dominican Republic expelled a lot of ethnic Haitians who had been there a long time, uh, many of whom really should be considered citizens. The problem in a lot of these countries is documentation; it's much much harder to get. Uh, but it forced out a lot of people, made it very difficult for them to document their status, pushed them back into Haiti. So they went from a country where they had jobs and at least some opportunity to one where they didn't. So that really, you know, that should be a good relationship. I mean, you know, you can they they are right next to each other. They share the island. Uh, those so those are countries that should work together. But unfortunately, their histories are a bit different, and they've they've had the conflict in the past. And you know, Cuba. Of course, I mean, the complication of being the revolutionary state at a time where many of the other countries having a better relationship with the U.S., the U.S. putting pressure on them not to have a relationship with Cuba, you know, has injected politics that would interfere with economic relationships. And certainly during the Cold War, anyone had to be concerned about dealing with Cuba because of the potential of it supporting revolution. You know, it has its relationship with Venezuela in a way that Cuba would not have a relationship today with Colombia and many other countries. And we should make note about just how different Haiti is than the rest of the the countries that you mentioned. Uh, Sure. You know, it really Haiti uh, stands out in Latin America and the Caribbean. Latin America and the Caribbean is a region with uh, middle income, poor countries, countries that are poor, but are sort of middle income for poor countries. Haiti is not. Haiti is at the bottom of of the list uh, alongside uh, some of the poorest African countries. And so it has all of the worst dysfunctions. I, I would say it's it's Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, for the most part, has surpassed Haiti in a lot of indicators, income and social and uh, human well-being and so on. And Haiti has basically isolated itself uh, uh, from the world. Uh, I think that a part of the problem has been um, the, the, the massive aid that has come Partly as a result of of its um, uh, dismal situation, the international community has responded by saying, well, we need to help. We need to promote uh, democracy. Not a new idea. We need to promote institutions. Not a new idea. And they've poured in massive amounts of of, uh, aid in an effort to nation build $13 billion in the past 10 years in Haiti alone. And look at where it's gotten. This is not a new story in, in Haiti. It seems to have uh, caused more harm than good. With respect to the United States, um, what ought to be the policy and what should uh, President Biden do and what should Congress do to, uh, you know, if if not actively help these countries, at least not stand in the way of the success of people governing themselves? Well, in Cuba, it strikes me that the obvious answer is to eliminate the sanctions, you know, the embargo, the restrictions on travel. I mean, it, it's you can still go there, but it's complicated in terms of who can go and under what circumstances. I think the best thing that one can do is allow Americans to travel. I mean, the the, the odd thing about the sanctions is that and the, the restrictions is that it primarily hurts Americans. Some of them are secondary. Some of them will penalize Europeans and others. Nevertheless, it's a country with other investments, not as if it is closed off to the world, which is one of the reasons why the attempt of the government to blame the sanctions for their failure is simply wrong, is that they have not been closed off from other investment. 
On my first trip there back in the early two, 2000s, I stayed at a Dutch-owned hotel. I mean, they had, you know, foreign money was in there. But we should allow people to go. And Ian is absolutely right. They're very friendly. I mean, I passed, you know, somebody wandering into a restaurant uh, on the street on my last trip. And he I said, where are you from? And I said, America. And he said, oh, I love America. And off he went into the restaurant. And this is probably somebody working at, you know, I, and, you know, getting you know, some foreign money. This is somebody who didn't want to work for the state sector. So, so there, and ultimately that doesn't yield democracy, but I think it creates pressure that uh, the more money that's there, the more you have a, a, a separate business center. I think that's very helpful. Haiti, I think, is much more difficult because, you know, as, in, as Ian indicated, we've made an attempt at nation building and the U.S. has bungled it. Uh, to my mind, there's a good reason for the U.S. to step back and figure, you know, France has a historic uh, you know, connection there and other countries in the region might be better at trying to help lead this forward than the U.S. has been. And I'm not sure how to make the system work. What we found is favoring different politicians there. We have not done well at finding the right people and trying to create a democratic system. And they're currently in crisis. The, the House of Representatives did not hold elections. There is no one in the House of Representatives. Only a third of senators are technically in office. The Supreme Court doesn't have a head. I mean, this is a system where politicians rely upon the organized crime. You know, I don't have a good idea how to, how to deal with that. I should note that um, with respect to Haiti, you know, we, we publish our Human Freedom Index at the Cato Institute with the Fraser Institute. And if you look over the past 10 years, when all this massive aid came in in order to help promote democracy and build up uh, the nation, what you see instead is a steady decline in human freedom, both in economic freedom and personal freedom in, in Haiti. This is certainly not uh, a record of success for, for the outside uh, interventionists. All right. I think we're going to leave it there. Ian Vasquez directs the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. Doug Bandow is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. And we provide essentially continuing commentary on the situations in Cuba and Haiti at our website, cato.org. Risk is a big part of life. In John Goodman's new book, New Way to Care, Social Protections That Put Families First, he details many market-based reforms to make families more robust against financially devastating events in healthcare and beyond. At a Cato Institute event in July, Goodman spoke with Cato's Michael Cannon. For all of mankind's existence, we've been confronted with certain kinds of risks. Uh, the risk of growing too old and being unable to support ourselves, the risk of dying early and leaving a uh, dependent family with no resources, uh, the risk of becoming disabled and not being able to work, uh, the risk of getting sick and not being able to afford health care. Um, these risks have always been with us. And for all of human existence from the Garden of Eden right up through the beginning of the 20th century, how did people deal with them? Well, they dealt with them by with families and extended families. But as we moved into the 20th century, families became unreliable. They moved apart and, and the ties weakened. And so people turned to government for uh, insurance that they could not easily buy in the marketplace. So if you think about why did government get so big in the 20th century? Why did it grow uh, and become such a dominant part of our lives? It's because uh, it's not because of the welfare state. It's not because of welfare for poor people. It's because of social insurance for the middle class. 
And we get to the end of the 20th century and people begin to realize none of these programs are working well at all. We have huge unfunded liabilities. They give us distorted incentives. And so all around the world, people have been now uh, uh, started at the end of the 20th century looking for alternatives. And that's what that book is about. In the book, Cover the Garden of Eden, you, do, you cover an impressive sweep of, a, of human history. You include the Black Death in Europe. You even go all the way back to the Peloponnesian War, which I think was the 5th century BC, but you left out the Garden of Eden. And maybe that's something for your next book to, uh, to tackle. I don't know how I did that. <laughs> <laughs> but let's, let's begin by uh, talking about some fundamental principles about how we address these problems. You write, uh, you, you address these directly. You write, here's the principle, government intervenes in insurance markets uh, where people's choices to insure or not to insure impose potential costs on others. Because of our basic human generosity, we're not going to allow people to starve or live in destitution. Uh, I, I, I wanna challenge the, the framework you're using there and one of the underlying assumptions. Doesn't that framework deny the agency of those who are making the decision not to let you starve or not to let you live in destitution such that if i force you to purchase and i think this is an important uh, uh an important distinction to draw or, or an important clarification to make because if i force you to purchase insurance so that i won't have to bear the cost of my preference not to see you starve or live in destitution then isn't forcing people to purchase insurance really fundamentally selfish a selfish impulse rather than an altruistic one well, you can look at it that way, and I don't necessarily agree that we need government to solve these problems. Uh, I was just trying to understand why government is there in the first place and why they are compulsory. And uh, they're compulsory because uh, uh, people are afraid of the free rider problem, that uh, if I uh, consume all my income in my working years and show up at the time of retirement with uh, no way to support myself, uh, because of the kindness of other people, they begin to support me and I get to double dip. I get to consume all my resources and then you pay for my retirement. So I think that's the motivation behind making a retirement program compulsory, making health insurance compulsory, and making these other social insurance systems compulsory as well. So also elsewhere in the book, you talk about in thinking about acceptable alternatives uh, to Social Security and Medicare. And here's another quote, our goal should not be to find alternatives that replace them entirely. Instead, we should focus on identifying acceptable alternatives that achieve a minimum level of retirement benefits. Uh, you also mentioned that the reform agenda in this book would maximize individual freedom and minimize the role of government. Uh, this sort of gets the answer to your first question, which is what do you say to those who say that the the purpose of government is not to provide this type of security. It's not to, uh, it's not to protect us from all of life's risks. Government exists and is legitimate only to the extent it protects us from a narrower range of risks. Well, if you read the Declaration of Independence, which a lot of people did yesterday, uh, you'll see that the purpose of government is to protect individual rights and to allow us to pursue our own happiness. Uh, and I agree with that. But uh, in the 20th century, government became responsible for insurance against uh, uh, very important risks, the ones I just mentioned. And, um, and we have to recognize that that's why it's there. And so I think that critics of government need to understand that if you want to replace these programs with systems that work much better, 
We have to understand why they're there. And we have to make sure that in the process of reform, uh, we make people better off and not worse off. We'll get that. I, have a, I have a question about uh, about that as well. Before we get to, to that question uh, uh, that you triggered, though, you do well, offer... Why don't I just give, why don't, why don't, Michael, why don't I just give an example? Um, after Please. World War II, um, there were about, uh, there were a dozen British, uh, former British colonies that faced this question. And what they did was they established provident funds. And in the provident funds, Singapore's the most, uh, the one that's most successful. But in all these countries, uh, there wasn't social security as we know it. Workers were required to take a portion of their paycheck each week and put it in a bank account. And uh, when they reached retirement age, then they lived off of their own savings. So all government was really doing was requiring people to put aside money for their old age. Uh, that sort of intervention uh, may not be justified, but it's not all that bad. Uh, it was only when these countries broke away from Britain and you get the forces of democratic voting that we, we, we get the kind of Ponzi schemes that we have today where we're making promises that are not funded at all and we're imposing huge tax burdens on the working population. That brings me actually to the quest next question I was going to ask. So you teed that up perfectly. One of the most powerful insights I got from patient power when I read it many years ago were what, what we call the public choice dynamics that you describe in there, why it is that socialized healthcare systems always cater to those with very minor healthcare needs and shortchange those with uh, with very expensive healthcare needs. In a new way to, a new way to care, what you talk about, uh, that you had a very powerful insight, which is that a lot of people say that government could work differently or work better if, if we only elected the, the right leaders. You point out in the book, though, that 95% of countries across the world have social security systems that are almost identical, uh, almost identical to what we have in the United States. Uh, and that would seem to suggest that whom you elect doesn't matter all that much. You, you mentioned that for the British colonies that uh, had undemocratic systems that put in place a, you know, social security programs that look different from those that democratically elected governments put in place. But what are those forces uh, that, as you see them, that push democratically elected governments to create these sorts of compulsory programs that end up with the sorts of unfunded liability problems that you mentioned? Well, one of my favorite examples is Britain and Hong Kong. And when Britain uh, came into possession of Hong Kong, it was almost a barren rock. It has no natural resources. There's no reason why Hong Kong should be one of the wealthiest countries in the world today. But they had a governor and the governor didn't have to um, uh, get elected. So the governor could do, uh, could, could, keep, could refrain from intervening in the marketplace. They had a flat tax, they had free trade. And by the time they turned Hong Kong back over to China, the per capita income in Hong Kong was greater than it was back in the mother country. Now that's, that's an amazing contrast. And so it tells you something about democracy, that in democracy, politicians are forced to do things that even they may know uh, are not helpful at all and retard growth and make people worse off. But democratic voting uh, creates pressures that forces them to do that. There have been pressures for democratic societies that have implemented those sorts of social security programs to change them. You talk about that in the book as well. Can you talk about what some of those reform-oriented pressures are, how they came about and how successful they've been? 
well, we get to the end of the 20th century, and um, there's a revolution that's been occurring all over the world. We had Margaret Thatcher, we had Ronald Reagan, and in some ways you can think of the last quarter of the 20th century as being a time when all over the world people realized that socialism wasn't working, the welfare state wasn't working, collectivism wasn't working, and they began to search for alternatives. So by the time the century was over, 30 different countries had moved to completely or partially privatize their social security system. Uh, Chile is uh, perhaps the most famous. Uh, Singapore never really had a social security system, but it has required a forced retirement. Uh, and you can think of that as an alternative to social security. And then around Europe and Eastern Europe, we had partial reforms in Argentina uh, and in other countries. I'm sorry to say that those reforms haven't lasted in some of those countries. And there's a real, real threat now in, in Chile. Uh, they may go back to the old system because um, uh, uh, the socialists in Chile are, are gaining political power. And that's um, their power has been increasing for the last 20 years. Conservatives used to be optimists, right? When it comes to big tech and the widely touted threat it poses to the ability of conservatives to share their opinions and arguments to an audience, they seem less than interested in advancing and adopting open source or blockchain-based solutions for their communications needs. Matthew Feeney directs Cato's Center for Emerging Technologies. We spoke for the Cato Daily Podcast. Conservatives have a lot of beefs with big tech and social media in particular. Uh, when you go through the the list, what seems to be at least the most reasonable sounding to you? Of the concerns associated from with the Republican Party? Is that, yeah. I think if you take a look at the Republican Party, there are a range of complaints about what people call big tech, which is a label I have a number of issues with, because mostly because it includes Twitter, which I think by any reasonable definition really doesn't belong in the same category as Facebook or Google. But let's put that to one side. There are a bunch of companies uh, called big tech, and uh, Republicans are very angry at these companies. So why are they? Uh, the most prominent, I think, of the criticisms is that there is a bias in Silicon Valley against conservatives. So the allegation is that uh, these companies are run by people who are very left of center and those political biases trickle down into content moderation. And as a result, uh, prominent conservative activists and conservatives uh, find themselves either so-called deplatformed or kicked off these platforms. Uh, the most prominent probably being probably being, of course, the former president of the United States, uh, Donald Trump, who uh, was removed from Twitter and Facebook. Uh, now, that that concern, I think, is uh, understandable given the media environment we're in. Um, I haven't seen hard, great empirical evidence that it's true. But but for us as, as libertarians, I think the most important thing to consider is even if it is true that the Silicon Valley giants are hell-bent on making sure that conservatives don't have a voice on the internet, what should the policy response be? Be. And there, I think we've seen an interesting schism emerging in the Republican Party because we've seen more Republicans uh, coming off as very open to government regulation in the form of either antitrust or Section 230 reform. Uh, and I think that is, uh, I guess, pretty interesting from a historical point of view, but worrying from a regulatory and legal point of view. Right. So uh, assuming that 
there is this divide between uh, conservatives and uh, we'll say progressives. They both seem to want to regulate big tech and yet they don't really seem to have a coherent thought about how to do it. That's right. There are two sides to this uh, this attack on big tech. If you're sitting in Facebook's offices, you're dealing with criticisms from progressives as well as some of these uh, conservatives in the Republican Party. Now, the concerns are based on different kinds of concerns. If you listen to some members of the political left, the concern about companies like Facebook and Twitter is that they don't do enough to tackle misinformation, also called deepfake content, election interference, or harassing um, and harmful content. If you are listening to criticism from the political right, you'll hear concerns about political bias. Now, it's it's true that you, are, you have both of these uh, concerns, but it's not clear to me how these arrive in a legislative package that both sides can agree on because the Republicans who are concerned about this are worried that these companies are taking down too much content and the left is worried that they're keeping too much up. Now, how do you square this whole in legislation? I don't think you really can, especially when it comes to the law called Section 230. But what you have seen more recently is a bipartisan push on uh, on antitrust, uh, the, uh, the the this this approach to uh, supposed monopoly power. Uh, now, there, I think the left's concerns are at least consistent or ideologically coherent. There, the the problem I find with some of these approaches from the political right is if your worry is bias in Silicon Valley, it's not clear to me how breaking up these companies will reduce that bias or change minds. Uh, you could break uh, Twitter and Facebook into a million pieces, but each of those million pieces will still have the First Amendment right to disassociate themselves from content they find objectionable. Uh, so there, I, I think it, it, it might not be the right mechanism to address bias per se, but at least it's uh, an attack on big tech. And I, I do think, unfortunately, that's where a lot of um, Republican lawmakers are, are looking these days. Right. The uh, claim from conservatives to try to boil down what you just said. The claim from conservatives is these social media platforms, big tech broadly, ought to adopt a First Amendment standard. Right. And the attack from the the left is, well, we just got to get rid of all this content that is offensive to truth, mm -hmm. however defined. Right. Mm -hmm. And there there is does not appear to be a way to bridge that gap. That's true, and uh, I think it is it is fine for for people to hold up the First Amendment as a laudable standard. And certainly, as as classical liberals, we look at the First Amendment as a great protection of of liberal values. But because it's a restraint on government, which is it is a very tolerant piece of legislation, and it says, absent very very few exceptions, America is the best country in the world for free speech. You are free to to say what you want. Um, However, it's not workable as a private sector content moderation policy. There are places in on the internet you can go if you want almost no content moderation, but they're not very visited. And the problem is that the First Amendment makes legal a ton of awful content that most people don't want to associate with. We're here talking about, say, you know, beheading videos or images of animals being crushed to death, uh, footage of of murders and uh, you know, pornography, these kind of things. And what what I the struggle here is that while that's clearly unworkable uh, as a standard, I think it's rhetorically very powerful. Uh, what, what I think is important to keep in mind is that the internet is much bigger than so-called big tech here. If your issue is with a handful of 
Silicon Valley companies. Uh, I I do not know why government intervention or regulation is is the answer there. Uh, I oftentimes think in these big tech debates that um, interesting alternatives. Uh, other social media platforms or services that are trying different governance mechanisms are oftentimes overlooked, and I think that's a shame. I think that what you're saying kind of gives lie to this notion that conservatives just want to be able to communicate broadly and freely with one each other, but also an audience, mm -hmm. because there are so many available platforms that are not and never will be a part of big tech, however, in scare quotes, big tech. Um, you and I were talking before we started recording. Mastodon is essentially an open source Twitter. Mm. Uh, Theta, among other video streaming um, cryptocurrencies, allow for completely unfettered uh, communication because there there is not this central authority of company that owns buildings full of servers that can tell you, oh, you don't get to communicate with one another. That's right. And and oftentimes when people are discussing big tech, I, I think one of the regrettable things about the, the debate is it's often overlooked how centralized and um, borderline authoritarian these companies are within their own bounds, which is, you know, YouTube and Facebook, they make the rules. Then there's one set of rules. And if you want to come onto their platform, you follow those rules. And if you uh, don't obey those rules, then you're supposed to be kicked off or have some action taken against you. But some of the services you just mentioned, I think, are, exper are experimenting with more decentralized content moderation uh, protocols and systems. And that's, to me, very interesting. I think many people who have been brought up in the social media age are understandably a little bored of this centralized system of content moderation and are looking for something where there is no CEO in a building just writing rules about what you can and cannot say. Uh, the the rules are increasingly decentralized. Uh, and, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, there seems to be a vibrant um, ecosystem on the internet where people can speak and find peers and speak to one another. Uh, but regrettably, so much oxygen in, in on Capitol Hill is being sucked out of the room by conversations about you know four or five companies, uh, and and as as libertarians you know, we we always talk about the risk of regulatory capture, and I don't think it's a surprise that many of us have seen adverts on on YouTube or elsewhere on the internet or Facebook now coming out and saying yes, look, we agree, the internet laws the, or the laws that govern the internet need to be updated. Yeah, uh, you're referring to Facebook, of course. Well, of course, Facebook is now said, look, Section 230 is 26 years old, give or take, and it's time to for a, a revamp, uh, to look at this again, uh, which is fine for a company that's worth billions of dollars and already in, entrenched in the market to say that. And a, and a company, we should add, that replaced several other companies, and but their ascendancy effectively destroyed them. Well, of course, right. This is, <laughs> but if you are, um, if you know, we we should remember history, right? Which is that uh, these these companies are not around because of uh, a law of nature. Uh, the, their success is not written in stone. However, they will become a lot harder to compete against if you pass regulations that only they can comply with. It's it's no surprise to libertarians, at least, that once there's rumors of regulation or laws, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world who can hire more engineers and lawyers than God descend on Capitol Hill with lobbyists and want to make sure that, well, look, if there are going to be new laws and regulations, at least we're going to be able to comply with them.
and will be able to uh, be safe in this environment. And that's that's very worrying. So why aren't conservatives more bullish on the ability of smaller firms and open source products to compete with a big tech? One of the main reasons I think is uh, they don't have enough time in that they're thinking in very short cycles, namely election cycles. Uh, there's a perception which I think is accurate, which you have to give them this, which is that Facebook is the most dominant social media platform in the world. And there is an impact on how to reach as many people as you want if you're kicked off Facebook. It would be naive to say that that doesn't have an impact. Uh, however, the the fact that you have you know, an issue you want to identify here with you know the the power of Facebook uh, shouldn't mean that you automatically reach to to regulation. Um, part of it, though, also might just be uh, be ignorance of the facts. I mean, I do think that um, a lot of the services that we've discussed in this podcast, many people haven't heard of. Uh, I, I've tried you know on numerous occasions to mention these alternative uh, services and platforms out there, um, but. Yeah, at the moment they're pretty small, and not all of them will succeed. But if you want to give them a chance to compete and to displace current market incumbents, the best thing to do is to make it uh, as easy as possible to compete against them. Uh, and unfortunately, I think efforts like Section Two Thirty reform will make it harder to dethrone the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. Privacy can be important for donors to nonprofits, but California didn't quite see it that way. The Supreme Court's Bonta decision rejected the state's claim that it needed donor information from a wide variety of nonprofits. For the Cato Daily Podcast, Trevor Burris provided some analysis of the majority and dissenting opinions and what will come next. What did we know before this case about associational privacy and uh, I'm going to assume you were not surprised by the outcome here. Well, we knew that the last major decision uh, along these lines was in 1958, and it was called NAACP versus Alabama. And in that case, the state of Alabama was seeking the donor information for the NAACP. Now, of course, in 1958, we have a pretty good idea of the kind of activities that the NAACP was up to in, in Alabama and why officials in Alabama may want to get that information. The officials in Alabama claimed, you know, a non-suppressing uh, purpose, right? Like monitoring the charitable fraud kind of situation. But the Supreme Court said, yeah, that's not going to fly here. We don't really believe your uh, explanation for why you want this, and you're, there is a right to associational privacy, uh, even for donations. And that's not terribly controversial. I, the framers would have definitely agreed to this. That the so, for example, the Federalist Papers were written under the pseudonym Publius, and Common Sense by Thomas Paine was published anonymously for the first three months until he had to uh, reveal himself for other reasons. And if someone would have said, "But what about the funding of Common Sense, or what about the funding, the printing of Federalist Papers? You know, can those people be private?" I'm like, "Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, maybe the British would have really liked to have known who funded Common Sense as much as." 
who wrote it. Uh, and that opportunity to go after speech by going after money is something that repressive regimes have done for a very long time. So yes, so we have this decision in Americans for Prosperity Foundation versus Bonta, which you did not surprise me because of the nature of the court. Uh, but it's a good decision that gives a lot of teeth to the importance of associational privacy in the matter of donations. And I think that it will get expanded and uh, will go after some very, very silly disclosure rules that exist uh, all over the country now. What were the complaints about what uh, some justices saw as the ultimate decision coming here? It's an interesting dissent. There's parts of Sonia Sotomayor's dissent that are, I think, completely misguided. But as someone who helped the lawyer uh, prepare for this case and the moot courts that we did, we knew that we had to make it clear that the harm that was experienced by the the petitioners, Americans for Prosperity Foundation and Thomas More Law Center, that that harm occurred when the government asked for this information. So it's just for a little bit of a backstory here. Uh, when you raise money in the state of California and pretty much in every state, you nonprofits have to file a form with usually the attorney general's office, but sometimes the secretary of state uh, that just is a, a a pretty standard form, and it's usually not that controversial. But in 2010 and, and up until 2013, the Attorney General Office of California started demanding what's called a Schedule B in addition to everything else, which is a list of your top donors who either gave over 5000 or who gave 2% of your revenue. And what happened when they challenged this is they, they were able to show in trial, this had a trial, which is, makes this case actually quite interesting because most constitutional cases don't have a trial, but they were able to show that A, their donors had been threatened and B, the information had leaked. So the attorney general's office did not protect the information that had leaked. But here's the, here's the crucial point for the constitutional question. It needed to be the case that the constitutional harm was was there, even if nothing ever leaked, that the harm occurs the moment the government asked for it. Because you don't want to be having a decision based on how much how much leaked and then when does the harm occur. So Justice Sotomayor was arguing, and she was joined by Justices Kagan and Breyer, that the there was no real harm here. They were not burdened at all. Uh, the California had uh, put in new procedures to protect the information that it was wanted to collect so that what, stuff wasn't going to leak. And so the idea of them just filing a form that they file with the IRS and giving it to the AG uh, of California, they said this is not really a harm. And so they said they kind of don't even have a claim was, was their argument. I think it's interesting that this case came down right after ProPublica published a very extensive set of stories about the tax information of some of the wealthiest people on the planet. It is really interesting because it would have been useful at oral argument. I mean, I mean they won, but the the one of the other difficulties with this case, there were two main ones that we were looking at. One was that uh, we would win but not we we didn't want to win narrowly because uh, you could the decision could have been you get donor privacy privacy if you demonstrate actual threats to your donors and you demonstrate leaks. So that would be a very narrow, narrow ruling. Uh, another, the other question, as I said, was like to say that the harm is there even if nothing leaks. And then the, another issue was, what about the IRS? 
So, so definitely the, the lawyer was asked by the justices, well, the IRS gets the Schedule B and they take it. So are you saying that the IRS doing this is also unconstitutional? And you know, there's a couple options you can say when you're asked that question. You can say, well, that's not this case. Maybe, maybe it is unconstitutional. Or you can say, well, this is a very, very different case. The IRS has more compelling reasons to have this than the state of California. Uh, and then all of a sudden it's like, and maybe they protect their data better except for not. <laughs> Obviously, they do not protect their data better. Um, so maybe there, there will be people probably challenging this on the IRS level. So we'll take another decision to see if it, this applies to the IRS request for this information. How important are chilling effects here? They're notoriously hard to measure. Chief Justice Roberts, of course, said that the privacy is the thing that you're trying to protect, right? It's, it's not what people do after your privacy has been violated. Precisely. It's the chilling effects are everything for this. And and I don't think the justices were, you know, they were very aware of, especially in recent years, how much uh, animosity there is in our political conversations and how much if you donated to some group that people didn't like and you could just go onto a website and figure out who you donated to, that this could create huge problems in people's lives. And, and you know, the Americans for Prosperity is connected to the Coke the Koch brothers, the Charles Koch, and um, that makes a lot of people really angry. And as I said, there were actual threats, uh, multiple threats on the record to donors. And so, yes, the chilling effect is profound. And this is the difficulty, right? You see people out there, you know, Twitter after this decision saying, oh, this is a Koch billionaire supporting decision. But like everyone, I mean, right now, conservatives have, you know, they used to talk, the left has been talking about disclosure for a very long time. They Dark money is their favorite word. They love to talk about dark money. And generally, maybe 10 years ago, people on the right were very for anonymous. But now people on the right have been going after donations too, like who's funding Black Lives Matter? Who's funding Planned Parenthood? Is George Soros somehow behind all these nefarious organizations? We need to know who's funding. This is And this is an interest for everyone. It doesn't matter how much money you give or it doesn't matter what you're giving to. If you are in rural Alabama and you and it's a very pro-life place and you support planned parenthood you know with a generous contributions or even small ones your neighbors might really really dislike you if they find that out or you flip it around and say you're supporting pro-life and you live in Washington uh, Washington state you know this is these are very very important concerns and so i don't want people to know what uh political or charitable activities I'm doing, unless it's up to me, I can tell them, I can be like, here's what I support. Uh, but in many instances, I don't want people to know that. And that's fine. That's that's every American's right. Uh, I've received pieces of mail uh, in the past pointing out uh, in the, the elections in which I had voted and pointing out uh, when my neighbors had voted and when they had not voted. And while that information is effectively public, uh, it's still information that is then used by some group to try to influence my behavior with either shaming or I guess letting me know, we know what, you, what you've been doing or what you haven't been doing. And I can only imagine if uh, that information uh, or if it were broadened to include information about charitable giving. Yes, definitely. Well, that was a something pointed out by Chief Justice Roberts in his opinion that if you looked at the amici who were coming in on the side of donor privacy, which included the ACLU, uh, the ACLU's brief was uh, very specific about um, they didn't want it extended to a campaign context, but they said donor privacy is presumed, the NAACP, and also just like 
a food bank in Wisconsin was was on one brief. And so this was this was a lot of different organizations stretching across the spectrum uh, who were interested in maintaining donor privacy. And just like you said, Caleb, like your voting record determines a lot of the kind of mail you get and the kind of uh, people who come knock on your door. And that stuff is uh, is quite publicly available. So if you added charitable giving, you know, there's a lot of people who would want this data so they could, you know, put you into an algorithm and target you with a bunch of ads and stuff like this. And if you just don't want that, uh, then you can remain uh, anonymous in this. So it's very important. I mean, the question going forward is how much are we going to expand on this? Uh, this was, a you know, all nonprofits, all charities, about 60,000 charities uh, fundraising in California. But now the question is, is does this opinion apply to sort of election, more election-related speeches, campaigns, stuff like that? Okay. So uh, going forward, what do you expect uh, in terms of either future challenges or pushback? I know that like Charles Schumer, Sheldon Whitehouse, and people like that have been pushing for a lot of laws to if not discourage, and I think Charles Schumer's on the record saying that the chilling effect is one of the benefits mm. of uh, disclosure when it comes to giving to nonprofits. So what do you expect going forward? Well, it, it's a it, it's opinion in the words of Justice Alito with teeth where the, the the standard that they applied to this and how much the government needed to meet a justification for this law is, is pretty stringent. It's exacting scrutiny. It's not strict scrutiny, whatever that distinction is. But I mean, Right now, there are people going to be filing cases, um, you know, in the coming weeks against certain disclosure rules uh, that are quite ridiculous. Um, ones that I've written about in the past, for example, there was a case called Delaware Strong Families that was on a cert petition and was denied. But in, in Delaware, uh, if you give $25 a year uh, over a four-year period, so it's $100 over a four-year period cumulative, so $25 a year to a C3 or a C4, uh, and that C3 or C4 mentions the name of a Delaware candidate for office, then you have to disclose your donors. Uh, so 25 bucks a year, you'd be on a public uh, record that you give to this organization. And that case was about a C3 that published a voter guide that just said, here are the candidates for Delaware office, and here's what they believe about these issues. It didn't even say you should vote for or against these candidates. It just was a voter guide. And that triggered the disclosure requirements. So if you gave this you know, Christian conservative organization $25 a year for four years, your, your name would be publicly available. That's silly. That is absolutely silly to imagine what possible justification the government could have for this. And they always say, oh, it's because of corruption or the public needs to know who's funding these organizations. Does the public really need to know who's giving an organization $25 a year for four years? I, I do not think that that overcomes the privacy. And in this decision, it'll be applied to these kind of questions. Now, they're different because they're election context. So maybe some courts will narrow it and maybe we'll be back at the Supreme Court about some sort of election disclosure law. But I think if you read this decision, laws like that cannot stand Florida's law if you if you spend one dollar uh, supporting a candidate in not, not a contribution if you spend one dollar own money you have to disclose yourself and register with the government these laws are not going to stand and that's a great thing yeah a, a friend of mine years ago especially in the election context where you're making explicit gifts to a campaign for public office there are rationales that are offered that are I, I think quite a bit stronger for uh, making those gifts public than to giving a nonprofit 501c3 money that is prohibited from one, doing lobbying uh, or 
engaging in overt politics. Yes, and if you if you so we, independent expenditure is, is spending your own money on what it's like election speech. In federal law, if you spend two hundred and fifty dollars of your own money, you also have to register with the government. So you have all these these laws that you have a state law that's going to be one thing, you have federal laws that are going to be other things. And again, if you've ever done that um, on your own, you just let's say you want to spend. $400 on a little bit of radio time in your local radio saying, um, I think you should vote for Donald Trump in 2024. I think you, that you just, that's, you know, it's maybe it's like 10 seconds, um, not a contribution, 10 seconds at 2 a.m. You say, hey, I'm Trevor and I think you should vote for this candidate. Well, you have to register with the government to do that. And that's sort of anathema to the entire First, First Amendment. So, you definitely have to ask the government, well, what is, you know, maybe there's a justification at $50,000 or $100,000 of spending, but it's hard to figure out how that justification exists at $250 or $1 or $25. So, so, you know, the baseline here is always the government, the First Amendment means that the presumption is on anonymous speech, is on political speech, and the government has to be the ones who carry the burden to explain why they can burden your speech in that way. This year marks the 20th anniversary of the Cato Institute's Constitution Day Symposium. Each year, Cato celebrates the day in 1787 that the Constitutional Convention finished drafting the U.S. Constitution with a day-long symposium featuring noted scholars discussing the recently concluded Supreme Court term and important cases coming up. For details and topics and speakers for the 20th anniversary event, visit Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.